Hi, my name is Anda Ginska, and this is Pros and Content. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, a digital content intelligence platform. I'm a massive data nerd who's fallen in love with storytelling. And so on the Pros and Content podcast, we will be featuring a series of really incredible leaders who believe in storytelling and who have different perspectives on the importance, measurement, scalability, and optimization of storytelling. Hi, this is Chris Vitti, the Senior Vice President of Marketing at Notch, and I will be your host for this episode of the Pros and Content Podcast. Today on the show, we have Todd Barr, the Chief Marketing Officer of GitLab. Todd is someone I've known for a decade and someone I consider to be one of the best CMOs in the business. Todd has an incredible knack for balancing creativity with data and building a great company culture. His company is also 100% remote and producing really helpful content related to the COVID crisis. So I wanted to have him on the show so he can share his story and talk about how GitLab is responding to COVID-19. Here's my conversation with Todd. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pros and Content Podcast. My name is Chris Vitti, and I'm the SVP of Marketing at Notch. Today on the show, we have Todd Barr, the CMO of GitLab. Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Uh, glad to be here. Great. Before we uh, dig in, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about GitLab? Sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, Todd Barr, and I am a marketing leader. Uh, I found myself in an interesting niche of marketing enterprise open source <laughs> companies that sell typically to uh, businesses. Uh, currently, I work for GitLab. We are a DevOps platform delivered as a single application. And uh, you may have heard of um, Git before. It's a version control technology. Uh, it's open source. And GitLab is a platform that allows companies to develop software faster and at a lower cost uh, than uh, sort of the common tool chain that a lot of companies are using today in DevOps. Um, so. Mm -hmm. We're about 1,200 people today, uh, and one of the unique things about GitLab is we are 100% remote uh, from the beginning of the company. We actually had an office once, uh, and our CEO, Sid Sibrandi, figured out that people uh, weren't coming into the office after a while and were getting just as much work done, and so he decided to uh, use All Remote as one of the cornerstones of the culture of GitLab. And so today we are probably the largest all remote company in the world, as far as we can tell. Most companies, even if they have a lot of remote workers, still have offices and we have no office with more than one person in it globally. We're in 60 countries. And uh, again, uh, fast growing. We're Luckily, we're still hiring in this uh, tough environment we're in. But uh, yeah, that's a little bit about GitLab. Great. Well, super excited to have you on the show. It's been a while since we spoke, um, but great to have you on. Um, let's go way back for just a minute. So you have a bachelor's degree in radio, TV, and film, which I was always fascinated by and probably not intentional, but I would love to hear a little bit and for you to give our listeners a little flavor of how that prepared you for this amazing career you've had in marketing. Thanks. I'm glad you're fascinated. Uh, that that uh, major doesn't even exist at the college that I went to, the University of North Carolina, anymore. Uh, I mean, who has a degree in radio anymore? But I guess uh, I'm, I'm prepared for this podcast. But uh, in general, I think one thing that happened towards the end of 
my time in college was uh, this thing called the internet really started. Uh, yes, that dates me. Sorry about that. But we're, we're, both, prepared- we're both in the same boat, Todd. Okay, cool. I was prepared uh, pretty well for that because of that degree, which was about creating content and communication. And I had also started doing design at that point. So my first job after college actually was as a graphic designer. And I think, you know, with the internet and the web starting, that was a great time to be in design because you were now designing, um, you know, visual pages that were dynamic and uh, included content and the world was about to change. So uh, that combination of that degree and my design skills, I think, really launched me into uh, a career in marketing. I started off in sales for a brief moment, but then sort of was able to transition over into marketing um, at an internet company very early on. Uh, And I think the combination of those skills really helped me. Absolutely. Um, So we won't go way back to the beginning of your career, but I would love to start with your time uh, as a marketer at Red Hat. So you were at Red Hat from 2002 to 2008. Um, I'd love for you to give the audience a little bit of a feel for uh, how those roles, you had different roles during that that six-year period, Mm -hmm. how those different roles helped set the foundation for you as a marketer and as a leader. There are a couple of unique attributes of Red Hat at the time that I think really helped build a great foundation for me. And you know, any young marketer, if you have the chance to do multiple marketing roles, I did a product marketing role, I did a customer marketing role, I did uh, a business development role, and I ended up running um, kind of all the go-to-market elements in the marketing organization at the time at Red Hat. We were much smaller than Red Hat is today. But what was super interesting about that was two things. One was the growth. Uh, in 2002, Red Hat launched really the first enterprise open source subscription. Uh, and now there's you know dozens of companies that have a model like that. In fact, this was really before SaaS. So the subscription model was relatively new for software. Most things were license plus maintenance back then. So we got and to they innovate. Came on, and they came on a CD. And it, it did. Uh, but, it, but what we sold was a subscription. Um, and so that sort of trained me in this idea of renewals and kind of everything that matters today in SaaS and subscription model. Um, so that was unique, I think. The other thing was growth. Um, Red Hat was a, was a super fast grower at that point uh, as Linux really took off. And then the third thing was Red Hat is an open source company and has a culture that's very open. And so that really, I think, as a leader, formed how I lead. Um, and I'm excited to say that GitLab uh, is one of the, they're extremely transparent. That's one of the parts of the culture here that's really amazing. And so it's taking it almost to the next level. Um, but as a leader, I think that's really been uh, you know, a cornerstone of how I like to lead, which is as transparently as possible and as openly as possible. And a lot of that came from my early days at Red Hat. Yeah. And how fitting based on the times that we're looking at right now and the crisis that we're involved with, you know, that word transparency is so powerful and I'm sure you're applying all of that to what's happening right now. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, the more we can communicate and be transparent with our prospects and our customers, uh, is an, an authentic, ultimately transparency leads to authenticity. And, uh, 
the more you're transparent and authentic, I think the better our messages will resonate. Absolutely. So after Red Hat, you make um, the big switch to a startup, Five Runs. And I know you were there during the Great Recession in 2008. Um, what were the immediate reactions you felt um, during that time as, as September 2008 unfolded? What were those reactions? And you know, how did you get yourself through it? And really, how would you compare that crisis to what we're going through right now? Yeah. So, you know, the, the history of five runs is we, I joined as a new management team on, uh, at a company that was about to raise a series B, you know, financing. So venture backed startup, we, you know, had a product, we were, you know, changing our strategy some and excited to raise a series B of financing with a new management team. And then the Great Recession hits. I was literally sitting in a venture capitalist office in Texas. And there's one of those, you know, some uh, office lobbies have one of those little video screens. And CNBC was on and the stock market was losing some insane amount of money as I was about to go in and ask for, you know, $6 million or whatever we were raising from a venture capitalist. And I was thinking to myself, this just doesn't make sense. Uh, and indeed it didn't make sense. Uh, we didn't have product market fit yet. And therefore everybody started, uh, hunkering down and we couldn't raise our series B and ultimately we had to wind down the company. And so we had to, you know, do what a lot of companies are doing right now and soul search and figure out how, if we can survive. And ultimately we figured out we couldn't, um, the difference is, so how I felt was I, I'm usually an optimist and I think I continued to be an optimist. In fact, I tried to buy a house in Austin where I was living with this company. So, and I hadn't sold my house yet in Raleigh because of the recession. And I was thinking, oh, it'll be fine. I'll buy another house and eventually that house will sell. Luckily that fell apart right at the end. But I was, I think I was optimistic for, uh, a long part of that until really you started to have to face the, the prospect of laying people off. And that's when your optimism uh, really shifts, I think, to concern and care about those people um, and ultimately your own livelihood. Um, I was really blessed to not have to go without a paycheck. I wound that company down and immediately found another job in, back in Raleigh and was able to make that move. Um, and most of the people at our company ended up finding other jobs relatively quickly, which was great. I think the difference in that crisis and this crisis is this was unexpected and fast. And that one you could see coming for a while. It was still, you know, it was fast in the grand scheme of history, but, but the COVID crisis is, you know, three months ago, we weren't even thinking about COVID in the United States very much at all. Um, you know, in February, I went to sales kickoff in Vancouver and, you know, in March we're locked down. So, and the, the economy, you know, grinds to a halt. So the speed of this crisis is much different than the speed of that crisis. I also hope the recovery will happen faster. Yeah. If we had that crystal ball, um, that would be very powerful, wouldn't it? Uh, great. So that was a pretty short, um, short run at five runs. 
Um, next, you make the big move to bandwidth.com, and now you're leading an entire marketing department. And I believe that was the first time leading an entire department in your career. Um, can you give the listeners a feel for um, what was that change like to go from leading a smaller team within marketing to leading uh, all of marketing? And specifically, do you have any advice for others that are looking to make a similar jump like that? The first thing is the first time you become a head of marketing, you're out of your depth. And uh, so you end up, the, you know, the inclination is to focus on what you're good at. Uh, I was good at starting things and brand and some of those types of things. And so I gravitated towards a product that we were launching at the time that um, called Phone Booth. And we had some success with that, some early success. It was sort of an internet product and we launched it South by Southwest. And it's one of the top, I think, five product launches ever at South by, uh, pretty far behind Twitter on that list, uh, really far behind Twitter. Uh, but anyway, uh, I think uh, by gravitating towards that, I, I think it's easy to sort of miss the fact that you are an executive and you actually need to think bigger about um, sort of the strategy and making sure you are, as a marketing executive, you should really be thinking about the whole go-to-market strategy for your company. And at Bandwidth, I think, you know, I focused on this new product we had and fixing some of the brand stuff, but I, I didn't, I think, really understand the full strategy of the company. Um, it was, you know, it was a success successful time, Bandwidth grew, um, and it was a great time. I enjoyed that job quite a lot. But it wasn't the best fit for me because I didn't understand the telecom space very well. And I think as a new you know, CMO, it was uh, I didn't necessarily take the time I needed to really understand that whole business. I just sort of jumped into things that uh, I knew uh, that I could contribute to immediately. Um, I think Alfresco was similar. We'll talk about that in a minute, I know. But uh but in general, I think that's really one of the things you have to think about when you're jumping to your first head of marketing role is you have to really become a strategic go-to-market thinker working with the rest of the executive team. And that means you have to stop doing some of the more tactical things that you're used to doing and make sure you hire people that can do those things. Yeah, it's funny you say, um, you know, basically being optimistic um, and going through some difficult times like you did um, with five runs. Um, it makes me think a lot about um, sympathy versus empathy um, and what we're going through right now. So I think as you continued and as I continue to um, lead larger teams, I think you have to have more um, focus on empathy and for what your team is going through. Um, and I would imagine that's a lot of what you felt as you took on that role at uh, bandwidth.com. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, but when you're young, it's it's... It's easy to sort of uh, just sort of think about what your career is doing and be thinking kind of towards the future and what you have to do. Um, the hard times are what makes you certainly go through and think, you know, really kind of think about empathy. I think as I've gotten older in my career and as a person, you know, as a father, all these things, my approach today is, you know, different, uh, sort of starting with the people first. Uh, and right now and with COVID, it's really about the people on your team and thinking about what do I need to do as a business leader 
to preserve the opportunity for all these people that we've brought along on this journey. So I know we're going to get to that later, but that's really the top priority now. Um, certainly, you also have to do right by the business and you are a steward of the business and your fiduciary duty is, as an executive is to make sure that the business is healthy. But in the context of that, how can you also preserve the opportunity for the most amount of people as well? I think that's something that certainly all leaders today are thinking about. Absolutely. So like you said, Alfresco, that is the company that brought us together. Um, that was back in 2010. Um, obviously, Alfresco is a content management company, right? And we produced a lot of content as part of our marketing strategy there. Um, how would you describe content marketing a decade ago compared to now? And I think for me, it was very important back then. It is very important now. Um, but I'd love to hear your perspective and for you to give our listeners your perspective on how you have seen it evolve over the last decade. Sure. Uh, before I do that, I, uh, I would be remiss to say, I'm so proud of you, Chris. Uh, you know, at the risk of sounding like your dad, I, uh, Chris and I worked together at Alfresco and Chris worked for me. And uh, just kind of seeing where he's come and how he's grown is, is uh, particularly satisfying. So great job, Chris. Well, right back keep, at you. Uh, keep it been, going. It's been a great journey. Yep. Um, to your question, um, I don't know. I'm not sure it's changed dramatically since then, except for we have better tools for sure to, uh, you know, track and really promote content. I think that's probably the biggest difference is that, I mean, we were making some great content at Alfresco, uh, great video content, certainly great web content. And some of that, you know, would be just as relevant today as it is uh, as it was then. I think one of the big changes today is bite-sized content is so much more important. We all just consume it so much faster and through many different platforms. So I think smaller bite-sized content is now uh, really more important than it was then. Um, certainly the world is consuming video more. And so that's one area where I think things have changed. I mean, the general premise of content driving inbound, you know, that you can then convert into opportunities is still generally the same. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of the nature of that content and also how we consume it is different. And then also the social platforms that have grown up to be able to promote and uh, just get that content and audience is, is quite different. Yeah, those are really uh, four great points. I, I noted uh, better tools, bite-sized content, video and social uh, would absolutely agree. I think measurement is something that we're really focused on at Notch and how can we uh, enable our customers to uh, really measure the impact of their content. So I would agree that that's something that has evolved quite a bit over the last decade. Um, we could certainly talk about Alfresco for hours, but we probably should move on. Um, so next you move to Ansible to lead both marketing and sales. And it's funny how at the beginning you mentioned that you were in a sales role at the very beginning of your career. And then at Ansible, all of a sudden you're focused on both marketing and sales. And then uh, a short while later, Ansible gets acquired uh, by Red Hat. And um, I remember seeing you announce that. Um, I don't remember if it was LinkedIn or Twitter, but somewhere. And you uh, positioned it as a homecoming, which I thought was really an interesting choice of words. Um, it made me think a lot about storytelling. That is something that we really focus on a lot with our customers is how can we enable them to become really powerful storytellers. 
Um, so that word homecoming really made me think of, you know, the story that you wanted the market to hear about the acquisition. And when you think about effective storytelling, um, would love to hear a little bit about how you balance the creative part of storytelling with the data that might back up that story. Sure. Well, you know, that story, first of all, when you get acquired uh, and you really want the market, especially when Red Hat's a public company, and we really want the market to see that acquisition as something that makes sense and ultimately that it's going to be really successful for the company. And so the homecoming idea was sort of, it was, it was authentic, number one. Many of us from Ansible had worked at, at Red Hat at different points in our career. And uh, it was also, I think, a message to the market that says, you know, this is such a great fit. We're open source. You know, we fill a, a gap that Red Hat had in their portfolio. Um, we are uh, another high growth open source, you know, addition to their portfolio. And it all just kind of makes sense. And in fact, it was super successful. Ansible continues to be one of their fastest growing products today uh, now that they're part of IBM and is used widely across the world. Um, so I think that story was really about uh, helping the financial community and Red Hat's investors in general and our customers know, the Ansible customers know that this was such a great fit. It uh, was something where those customers and investors were going to uh, see a benefit from that that uh, combination. And so I think that that really worked for that acquisition um, and it was authentic. So you, you kind of had the best of both worlds there. And to answer your question about creativity and data, I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, you have to use data to validate your creativity. And uh, what I didn't say was use data to create your creativity, you can do that. And it certainly gives you uh, ideas, but in terms of new product development, as well as new marketing uh, programs and campaigns, certainly data informed is better when you're creating a new product, but data is not going to tell you everything because everything hasn't been invented yet. And so the way I kind of think about it is data can validate your creativity. And the key is to start small so that you can validate it along the way. And so, uh, you know, everything from A-B testing to message testing uh, to, you know, focus groups, if you're doing products, um, to just seeing, you know, if it's converting, if that message is working or not. Um, we started using some messaging at uh, GitLab last year that was much more about customer value and kind of the, the business value of GitLab. And what we learned from our data is that uh, that message resonated really well in the sales process, but it didn't necessarily attract new, uh, you know, new prospects because mostly new prospects adopted GitLab through the technology side. So we had to kind of focus back on technology use cases and product use cases. So that's what, you know, we were pretty creative in coming up with those use cases, but the data didn't validate that that was a way uh, to uh, the best way to, for us to acquire new prospects. And so we're, you know, we're in the process of making a change on those, those campaigns. Um, but essentially, I, I like to think that data can validate or invalidate uh, creativity, but that 
humans can come up with cool ideas that uh, the data may not tell you, uh, and then you can kind of test those later. I love that. It really gives your story a backbone and credibility as you tell it to the market or whoever your audience is. We'll be right back to pros and content after this brief message. The Pros and Content Podcast is brought to you by Notch, the content intelligence platform for brands. For a demo and to learn how to best plan, measure, optimize, and benchmark your content marketing strategy, visit us at notch.com. K-N-O-T-C-H dot com. Notch. It's all you'll ever need. All right. So that brings us to your current role. That was a lot about uh, the history, and I think it was important, but I didn't want to spend too much time there. So let's move on to your current role as Chief Marketing Officer at GitLab. Um, like you mentioned at the beginning, your entire workforce is remote. And I love that story that you had a you know one office at a certain time, and, and now that's gone, right? So entire workforce is remote, which is incredible. Um, pretty large workforce. And so what we're going through right now is probably not much different um, just from a remote perspective. Um, can you tell the audience a little bit about um, what did a regular day look like for you and everybody at uh, GitLab before this crisis? And what does it look like for everybody now? Yeah, fantastic. It, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, there are a lot of things that are exactly the same, but there are a few things that are different and they're different for everybody. So before uh, a regular day at GitLab for me as an executive was probably you know six hours of Zoom calls uh, with breaks in between and things like that. Uh, everything from one-on-ones to team calls to at GitLab, we've um, you know this this strategy has changed over time, but we have company calls and we have AMAs often that include that are you know, open to everyone at the company. So you, know, you could easily be on a call a couple of times a week with three or 400 people on Zoom. And uh, just curious, know, are those video calls? Yeah, we do video calls for everything. Love it. So in fact, the culture of GitLab is you know, video by default. Uh, and it, it just makes the interactions much richer, but uh, is what we found. But there's some interesting things that we do uh, at GitLab that I think are more than just, you know, going video and doing Zoom and being everyone working from home. One of the things is we document everything. So we have a public company handbook. It's on the Internet. You can find it. Uh, and in our handbook, we document all of our processes, all of our teams, and uh, it's dynamic. We're updating the handbook every single day. In fact, if we announce a new change in a policy at the company, it's handbook first. So we change the handbook, then we announce the change with a hyperlink to the handbook. And it's all public internet. So uh, we're super, like I said, we're super transparent because all of our company's policies are essentially on the public internet in our handbook. What that does as a remote company is it allows new starters to already have essentially the handbook they need to understand, you know, not just kind of a typical company handbook, which is the HR policies, but actually you go in and you can look at any, any organization and see what they're doing and how they're doing it and figure out how to become productive quickly. There are literally thousands of pages in our handbook. So 
Yeah. Does HR oversee that handbook and then the departments uh, contribute to it? No, it's completely decentralized. So we all manage our own handbook pages. Um, and it's a, it's a, I won't call it a tax, but it's work. And, but the, the benefit of that work is that whenever someone new starts and they're like, Hey, how do I order a laptop? Oh, here's the handbook page that shows you exactly how to do that. You know, we have in our handbook, we have, uh, well, from a marketing perspective, it's how do I run a webinar? Oh, it's in the handbook. Here's the link. Um, or what's our strategy for this year? It's in the handbook. All my OKRs are in the handbook publicly. Uh, so I think really it just, it levels the playing field for an all remote company. Cause you can't just walk down the hall and ask your coworker something. You can do that. You can zoom them. And we have these things called coffee chats, but it's what we call asynchronous. You don't have to go to somebody to find the information. It's all there. The second element of that is every single meeting, and I'm not joking or using hyperbole, every single meeting at GitLab has an agenda that's a Google Doc. And it's also uh, essentially crowdsourced. So I have a, uh, an all-hands marketing meeting every single week. Um, and the document is simply a Google Doc, a numbered Google Doc. And if you want to put something on the agenda to either ask a question or talk about it, you just go in and you put, the, put an entry in the Google Doc on the agenda. And every meeting, we start the agenda at the top of the agenda. And whoever has that first meeting agenda item uh, just you know, talk, verbalizes their question or their comment. And then we move to the next one. And so meetings are really democratized. There's no executive starting the meeting with the gavel saying, the meeting's now beginning. The first person on the list starts the meeting. Um, and, and, and while we're in the meeting, we collaboratively note take for each other. So if I'm talking, somebody else's writes Todd in the agenda and paraphrases what I'm saying. And I'm seeing it because I'm in Google Docs so I could change it or tweak it after I've said it. And then when somebody else is talking, I put their name and I start typing for them. So we have a record of everything that happened and was said in that meeting. So if you're... If you didn't get to go to a meeting, or if there was a meeting about something that you are interested in later, you can say, hey, can you just send me the agenda of that meeting? And I can read the whole meeting. I can see what happened. I can see the outputs. I can see the decisions that were made. And I'm off to the races. So that is sort of the secret behind all remote that I think most companies, you know, we're in phase one of remote work where people have figured out how to do Zoom or, you know, Microsoft Teams and Slack but they're still working the same way they worked before. And now we're in a phase where it's possible to do more and to do it better and differently than you would do in an office. And that's, you know, writing everything down is sort of one key to doing that. So what's different is the same thing for everybody. Our kids are home or maybe you don't have kids and it's really lonely because you're home all day and you can't go out. And your internet's taxed because everybody's doing distance learning or there's more people working from home. That's the same for everybody today. And so we are, you know, at GitLab, we've said to our employees, look, if you need to take an hour or change your schedule to help your kids with distance learning or to keep your mental health, um, do what you need to do. Um, and so I think that's true for everyone. And that's what's different now is that it's sometimes hard to stay motivated. It's sometimes hard to stay focused. And we're all empathetic to that because we're all going through that together. And that's that's different. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you say that. Um, we have found uh, since we've been working remote that people are actually working longer hours and, and in some cases more efficient. And so we've actually mandated an hour break from 1 to 2 p.m. every day just to give people time to do exactly what you just described. A siesta. I love it. Pretty much. But it's yeah. not right. People are um, doing all different types of things from, you know, taking a walk, exercise, um, reading a book. Um, some people do choose to work through it, but we uh, encourage them not to. So all different types of activities. Yeah, I do think one of the things that you have to do when you're remote is you have to focus on results, not hours, because people will work more um, and you have to actually protect against that a little bit because people can burn out. And so we actually are pretty, we don't tell people what hours to work, but we say we don't promote or celebrate them working longer and our executives take weekends. And, you know, I actually have a, a goal with my boss to only work late 20% of the time, which basically is one day a week. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm working with him to try to get better about that. Cause I got a little over the top on working late and, and so uh, you have to really guard against that um, at a, at, when everyone's remote because it's it's easy to just let work kind of take over your life. And so, uh, again, the way through that is to focus on results, and that takes a while to get that culture built. Yeah, it's a really vicious cycle. Um, you know, one one late night impacts the next day, and then if you keep repeating that um, schedule, it just has this trickle effect um, every day thereafter. So definitely, uh, definitely can relate to that one. All right, so let's uh, let's talk a bit more about COVID nineteen. So, love to hear a little more about how your marketing strategy has shifted as a result of COVID nineteen, and this has all unfolded over the last you know four to five weeks. So, um, how has that shifted, and specifically, what have you done with your events budget as a result of COVID nineteen? Well, I mean, I think there's two there's two shifts. One is you know lack of events and travel, and two is real pressure on the business that is causing us to think through our budget and our spend in general. Um, so I think those are the two big things that every marketing organization is dealing with. Uh, we're probably doing the same thing most other companies are doing who have similar you know, businesses is we've moved physical events to virtual events as much as we can. Um, many of those are sponsored events still, uh, and some of them are owned events. And we were kind of doing both of those anyway in the physical world. So we're, we've moved as fast as we can to those and we're doing more digital. And um, Todd, if I remember correctly, your um, business was very much built on a physical events model. Is that right? Well, inbound first. So, you know, something like 60% of our opportunities can be attributed to inbound motions. So inbound marketing first, and then for our paid demand gen, it is field marketing driven events and, and kind of large events. Um, really in terms of community um, growth and development. Yeah. And just contact acquisition and being, you know, in the right place at the right time. Um, there's tons of DevOps events. There's tons of cloud events that you can be a part of. And so uh, Kubernetes events, we've, we've been part of all of those uh, from a field perspective. Gotcha. And those are global, correct? Yeah, it's just everything. I mean, we're doing everything from a 12-person customer event to that we own to, you know, the biggest one is Amazon reInvent, uh, you know, which is a huge event. 
every year. And then we do everything in between. So that was what our field marketers were doing. They were essentially doing some combination of sponsored and, and owned events. And those have, and they're shifting as fast as possible to, uh, to virtual events. The other big shift we're making is we were actually starting to do this before is just getting really smart about our targeting. I mean, in B2B, it used to be that you had territories in marketing or territories in sales. And today we have the data to be able to look at any territory as simply a group of accounts. So I'm not talking about ABM tactics, which is sort of white glove marketing to your top customers. What I'm talking about is every territory, you know, you don't have to be a field marketer in the Southeast anymore. You can be a field marketer that's responsible for marketing into 300 accounts that we can name and we have data about, about what are they intending to buy? What is their, their technology strategy? Oh, they look like the right 300 accounts. Let's market specifically to those accounts. And so that data exists today. Um, and we've been shifting our marketing to get really focused on targeting in we're calling what we're calling micro campaigns, where you look at that set of accounts and you're going to run some digital, maybe some virtual events, specifically targeting that set of accounts. And those virtual events, have you made a decision on uh, the length of time you're going to be running those virtual events to replace the physical events? Is it going through Q2 further out? Well, if, if I had my way, we would be doing them forever and we would, you know, I'll just put some thoughts out there. I don't know if this will come true because results are what matters. I would like to, to forever do 50% fewer physical events than we were doing before and travel 50% less than we were doing before for in perpetuity. I, I think the benefits, it, you know, to me, marketing, at least in my space, B2B enterprise marketing has way over rotated, but it feels like you have to be there on many of these events. I mean, I pay vendors hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to go to their events and try to attract their audience. And some of them work really well, but uh, I don't really want to go back to that. I don't think it's the most cost-effective mechanism. I think it's probably, a, I want it to be a much smaller part of what we do in the future. So I don't think we'll ever go back. I think, you know, if we go back, it'll be at a much lower cost and a much lower uh, part of our budget and motion uh, than was previously. Yeah. Hopefully we'll see the uh, fear of missing out decrease over time, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. So one thing I've been super, super impressed by, uh, especially on social is I've seen GitLab put out a ton of great content about COVID-19 and working remotely. So um, you know, as a uh, content marketing uh, vendor, we're always really looking at brands and how effective they are. And I know I have been and others at my company have been really impressed by the content coming out of GitLab. So this is one of the things I really wanted to dig into um, just to understand um, how did you go about taking all of the great content that you already had around working remotely and pivot to building a story around COVID-19? And then once you started doing that over the last you know, five weeks or so, um, how have you been measuring the impact and effectiveness of that content? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, if, if we're honest with ourselves and as marketers, I always feel behind. 
I always feel like, ah, you know, I wish I would have been more prepared for this or that. Um, And hopefully, you know, we're prepared enough that we're driving the business results we need. But for the first time, we were finally, uh, you know, ready for the world to view remote work as relevant. (laughs) So uh, about nine months ago, I hired our head of all remote, we call him. And his name's Darren Murph, and he's fantastic at social and content. And uh, he's, you know, he's actually a Guinness Book of World Record holding blogger. I didn't even know there was one, but we have one here working for us. And Darren started nine months ago just writing content for our handbook about how we do all remote working. And so we actually were ready with content when uh, the world changed in the last month. And so what we've done is simply repackage that content. So we made an ebook. We're about we're working on the second ebook right now. We've uh, packaged that content and promoted it in you know, survey form uh, to media around the world. And the result is we. Uh, because GitLab's all remote, we have a message that's relevant right now. And we've been covered in probably north of 75 articles, everything from the Wall Street Journal to Fortune to Forbes to BBC uh, and many other publications around the world about how GitLab manages uh, remote. And uh, that's so we were just ready and we, it's, it's a relevant topic. And um, so we didn't have to pivot that much from a content perspective. But we did uh, have to think about our calls to action and how we were going to accrue the value of this content that we have to our business and our brand. Now, to be honest with you, I'm not trying too hard to push our product right now, even though it, you know, GitLab is a remote tool for you know, DevOps and DevSecOps. We are doing some of that and we're kind of adding that message slowly. But what we're really trying to do is make sure to you know, take advantage of this as a a way to help the world with content that we already have that's relevant right now, and b um, brand building so that when you know companies start to normalize and get back to normal and start buying things again, that GitLab will be a brand that they you know saw as being helpful during a difficult time, as well as having really relevant technology and relevant content for what they're going to be in the future. And so that's kind of how we're thinking about it. We're measuring it right now through ebook downloads, through media mentions, and um, we're starting to look at, and certainly web traffic, uh, and we're starting to look at um, kind of what I call off ramps to product for people who are interested in GitLab, giving, giving them a sense for how we use our own product remotely. And if that's interesting to them, having off ramps. Uh, for them to be able to try our product and uh, you know engage with us in that way, and we're going to begin measuring, you know, how many of those folks are off ramping into product just to see what that looks like. But mainly, uh, it's brand building. It's you know it's helping, and it's uh, preparing us and hopefully accruing some value to our brand so that when people are ready to really buy again, they're thinking of GitLab top of mind. I love it. The whole story reminds me of uh, a prayer for Owen Meany. Did you ever read that? I don't think so. Oh, interesting. It doesn't have a happy ending, so it's not exactly the same story, <laughs> but um, you should read it sometime. Basically, um, the main character practices a certain move for years and years, and then the value of that move 
um, finally shows itself and, and why that practice paid off. And so it really reminded me a lot of um, really what GitLab is doing right now and, and all of the history behind it and how, you know, the timeliness of this was um, so, uh, you, know, you know, so interesting in terms of the background and the foundation that was laid, not knowing that this, this was coming and then yeah. finally kind of the payoff of it coming, even though it wasn't planned. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think Sid, our CEO, um, who really started all this, and I mean, from a vision perspective, um, you know, he knew eventually there would be a lot of remote work. But but like you said, nobody knew that there would be a reason for everyone to try it immediately. And to be honest, I'm pretty impressed with the world and the business world and the way people have adapted so fast. I mean, that's just resilience. Um, but there's a, you know, if you really want to make an advantage out of it, um, there's some things you really have to do. And I think that's, that's the next phase of this messaging is, okay, now you've figured out how to be remote. Now, how are you going to thrive remotely? How, how is your business going to change for the better forever remotely? Um, what are you going to learn from this time that you can take back, to, you know, and continue to be better remotely in the future? And that's the next wave of messaging that we're going to really work on is, um, you know, thriving through kind of the next phase of changes or additions to make to your strategy uh, that you can, you know, benefit from forever. And that'll be a challenge because I think a lot of people will, it'll just be easier to kind of go back to work. And so the best companies will learn from this and be better for it relative to their workforce. Uh, to their flexibility for their employees, to productivity, uh, and uh, will come out really, you know, really strong on the other side of this. Absolutely. So we've talked a lot about our companies. Uh, would love to hear your perspective on what brand or brands that you've been really impressed by in terms of how they've been dealing with and responding to COVID nineteen. Yeah, good question. Um, you know, there's been so many good examples. Um, and one of the, this is going to be kind of a wacky example, but it is a brand. Um, but a few nights ago, uh, Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood were on TV live streaming basically from a studio. And then also like, uh, there's been a couple of different concerts. There was an iHeartRadio concert and there was, a, um, an ACM concert, American Country Music Awards, uh, or whatever that stands for, uh, a, a few nights ago. And I've just been impressed by how uh, authenticity is back in a big way. And I'm so excited by it. Like, you know, typically when you go to a concert or you watch music on TV, it's highly produced. And it's, you know... It, it's sort of like the best concert ever on TV. You know, it's just everything's so well produced. What's been cool is, uh, you know, all these country music stars who typically when you see them on their TV, they're, they're like, they look like stars. Well, now it's, they're just humans playing music in their house. And because of technology, it actually sounds good. <laughs> and, uh, the democratization of that technology, you know, people are basically on their iPads or iPhones with these fantastic speakers and, uh, or microphones and they sound good. 
and you're getting this level of authenticity now from that music that was missing unless you went to a small show, uh, you know, in your city, just look, you know, listening to live music. And so just the, I don't know, I think it's profound because I think it might change how we listen to music and watch music and consume it, um, in some interesting ways, but and I think it's much more interesting, you know, Garth and Trisha sitting there talking about their life and playing little bits of songs was much more interesting than going to a stadium concert, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so true. It's funny. We, uh, we've been running these um, COVID roundtables with marketers and other executives and leaders, and it's just so um, refreshing to see everybody in a, a real element, you know, in their homes, everyone is up at their house, obviously, and doing the best they can with, with whatever, um, you know, work environment they have. And I am so, um, uh, it's just so refreshing and enlightening to see people there with their spouse passing in the background or their dog running by or, you know, in their pajama bottoms, whatever the case might be. But people are just so real right now that I, I hope we don't go completely back to where we were, where people are in a really formal setting in their office and aren't afraid to show themselves because it's been so nice seeing the other side of all of these great marketers and leaders. Yeah, exactly. And I think from a content perspective, it's uh, challenging how we think about the production of content. Um, and, uh, you know, just to reference GitLab again, we we produce video every single day at GitLab. It's raw. We go live sometimes uh, in, during a meeting. We'll use Zoom and hit go live on YouTube and we'll live stream. And we have a GitLab unfiltered YouTube channel that's basically just our meetings and, you know, interviews, various things. And, um, and I think that content's now really relevant because that's, you know, that content, if we, if we curate it correctly, is now going to be the stuff that people use to learn about our product and buy from us. And it used to be that you, you needed a highly produced demo video and, a you know, uh, some customer case studies that were really slick and from a video perspective, and now you can just kind of not do that and be authentic and go faster and smaller bits of content. So I think that's, that's a, that's a great change for us. Absolutely. All right. So, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about what aspects of marketing um, do you think will change forever as a result of this crisis and what will go back to normal? And you kind of hinted a little bit on the event side, right? You said that, you know, once we get back to normal, so to speak, you hope that um, about 50% um, less physical events will be done and more virtual events will be done. So it sounds like that's one thing that you think will change. Um, but would love to hear a little bit more about what do you think will change forever um, and what will go completely back to normal? Physical events will change forever. Um, you know, O'Reilly is out of the events business now, um, as an example, and they're only kind of the first. There'll be others. Uh, I think it's important not to lose track of the fact that while this whole thing's happening, um, data privacy laws and heightened sensitivity to tracking are still uh, getting uh, harder for marketers. And I think probably for the better ultimately, but, you know, I think we're 18 to 24 months from, you know, cookie-based tracking, uh, being not really viable anymore for marketers. And we're going to have to 
do new things and rely on our vendors to innovate um, and probably be more authentic and uh, a little bit less um, reliant on some of those things. Uh, so I don't, you know, that that's not specifically related to COVID, but it's happening and we can't forget about that. Um, the unique thing about video is uh, what just happened is that the world got forced to learn how to use tools like, like Zoom, which makes everybody a potential producer and live streamer. And so now that everybody's like comfortable with it, we're going to see a lot more of it. We're going to have to figure out in marketing how to use it, how to leverage that. Um, and people are going to be even more used to it than they were, not just from a consumption perspective, but from a producing perspective. Um, I think, you know, transparency and authenticity now is uh, even more important than it was. I think face-to-face -face interactions, not just marketing events, but even sales interactions, I can see being 50% less for the foreseeable future. Um, but video will end up replacing that. And then, like we talked about, content is getting shorter and, uh, you know, playlist binging is now mainstream. You know, people who weren't using Netflix before are using Netflix now and understanding that. And, you know, companies like Quibi are out doing you know, bite-sized produced content. And so those are all the things I think are kind of changing. And I don't think we go back to where it was before. You know, some of the things that are the same is inbound marketing is still going to be super effective. Search is going to be, you know, the, the main way people find your stuff. And, you know, we're going to still need to have all that same content uh, on our websites because it's still going to be uh, where we get our best leads and opportunities from. Um, yeah, it's, funny how, that, it's funny how, yeah, I mean, it's funny how the conversation often comes back to content, right? Because content has so many different meetings and so many different formats. And it's at the end of the day, it's really all about great quality content, whether that is bite size or longer form or video based. Um, it really is content that is pulling people in and you know, now that extra level of authenticity that's, that's really driving more and more value. Yeah, I agree. Um, content is still king. Yes, it is. Um, so let's uh, wrap it up a little bit on the sympathy and, and empathy note. So we talked about that a little bit at the beginning, and I want to come back to that human element because that's really what we all need right now. Um, would love to hear a little bit about um, advice that you might have for anybody working from home right now and struggling. And I say that in the sense that, you know, you and I have worked from home at various points for many years. So I, I've done it for six years. I think you may have done it for more and we've, we've gotten pretty good at it. Right. Um, but I think there are a lot of people out there um, struggling to find balance between work and life and just, you know, generally maintain um, mental health. And so you know, as somebody who worked from home for a long time, um, what advice do you have for people in that situation right now? The first thing is to talk about it. And hopefully you have the type of relationship with your boss or your teammates or the people who work for you where you can say, I'm not doing okay right now. And I'm going to take a mental health day. Or I'm going to make some changes in order to do that. Um, so a few weeks ago, before COVID, was really, um, you know, before we were stuck in our homes, put it that way. Um, there were a variety of things happening both in my life, but also at work. For example, I had to make a decision working with um, our other executives, but I was the 
responsible for this event to cancel our all company event. Now, when you're, when you're a remote company, you cherish the time to get together physically to meet the people physically and interact with them and socialize with the people you've been working with over a video. So at GitLab, we do a, um, a, an event every year called Contribute that is where we get the whole company together. So we were all supposed to be in Prague together, all 1,200 of us, um, about two weeks ago. And I had to decide before any of the um, kind of official lockdowns came in place, even the travel stuff hadn't happened yet. I had to make a call on whether or not to postpone or cancel that event. And so that was stressful. Um, I had a few other things going on at work and in life. You know, mental health has an extreme impact on physical health. And ultimately, we have to take care of ourselves. And so that's when I said to my boss, look, this is what's happening. And these are the changes I'm going to make. I'm going to turn off Slack at night. I'm going to stop working, you know, only work late 20% of the time. And I need, uh, you know, your understanding on that. Obviously he understood cause he's, uh, he's a great boss like that. Um, and then I told my, uh, leadership team, I said, look, I don't want any of you guys to feel like I'm feeling right now. So this is what I'm doing. I would invite you to do some of these same changes. And, uh, and then I also told kind of my general, uh, marketing team what I was going through. So the first thing is when you talk about it, first of all, I felt better. And second of all, um, I was able to verbalize the changes I was making in my, uh, work life in order to get some of that, um, some of my health back. And, um, so I think that's kind of the most important thing. And honestly, if you don't work in an environment that supports you in that way, you should really think through that um, because uh, I think that has to be top of the list is your mental health and kind of the health of your team. Um, and the second thing is I schedule everything. So I schedule my breaks. I schedule my time that I start the day, the time that I end the day. And uh, I, I'm, I have an open, transparent calendar in Google so anybody can see what I'm doing. And the ironic thing is people don't have any problem like double booking you over a business meeting. <laughs> Uh, but they won't double book you typically over your personal stuff if you actually tell them that you're doing personal stuff. So if I put spending time with my kids or taking my wife out to dinner on my calendar, people don't book over it because they wouldn't want to be booked over if, you, if they had. So I'm just transparent about it and I put it on my calendar and I try to take breaks um, and put those on my calendar too. And that really helps from some of the external pressures that, uh, that are on us all. So those are a couple ideas. Um, in general, take care of yourself, take care of your family first and your friends. And then, uh, you know, guess what? The work will still be there. Really great way to end it. Um, Todd, it's been great having you on the show and catching up with you. Um, thank you for being our guest on Pros and Content. Thanks, Chris, for having me. And uh, stay safe. Uh, take care of your friends and family and, uh, and your team. Likewise. Take care. Thanks, Todd. Bye. So that was my conversation with Todd. I love how he summarized the evolution of content marketing over the past decade, including social networks maturing, increased video usage, bite-sized content to match with current attention spans, and better technology for measuring the effectiveness of content. I also really liked how he uses data to validate stories to make them even more powerful. And I appreciated how transparency has been such a huge theme throughout his career, and his advice at the end about mental health is so important right now. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode, and if you have any feedback about my conversation with Todd, please email me at chris at notch.com. Thanks for listening.